Genesis chapter 15, as you may have seen in my text that I sent out this week, this truly is one of the most bizarre chapters in the Bible. And if you read this and you think, that is so strange, why did Abraham do that? And we'll see why in just a minute. But after we discover what it means, you'll see that this is also one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. So it's bizarre and beautiful at the same time. Um, let's just read it first and then we will dig into it, okay? Genesis chapter 15, you can follow along on the screen or your device or your Bible as I read. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth from the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all, and he brought them all these. He cut them in half. He laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted. 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they will serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch Passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a, a really unusual passage, but yet we know that there, every word of God is true and inspired. Lord, help us to have the wisdom and the information we need to see what you're saying to your people, what you promised to Abram, and what you promised to us. Open our minds, open our hearts, that we may receive Christ, the incarnate word, and we ask in his name, amen. How many of you have heard of R.C. Sproul? Raise your hands if you've heard of R.C. Sproul. Passed away a few years ago. R.C. Sproul said that if he was put in jail and was allowed to only have one book, he would obviously choose the Bible. But if he was only given one book from the Bible, he would choose Genesis. And if he could only have one chapter, he would choose Genesis 15, this very passage right here. And you all know that I'm also a student of Tim Keller. He says pretty much the same thing. And this has become one of my favorite stories and passages in all the Bible. And again, as you read it with me, you probably thought, man, that is really, really weird. And we're going to look at it even closer and see how indeed it really is weird. But there is a really an amazing message here in this passage here. And again, one of the most beautiful ones, chapters in all the Bible. In fact, the gospel is very beautifully displayed in this chapter right here. There's actually two chiastic structures in this passage here. And for those who are new to Revolution, a chiastic structure is a pattern of where they tell a story kind of like a sandwich. You begin with bread. And you have maybe some mayonnaise or mustard, then you have the meat and cheese, and then you work your way out the same way. And what's in the middle 
is the most important part. So, for example, in the first six verses right here, and again, it's really small, but I just want you to see the main thing, is that he's talking about his salvation and how God will be his shield, his reward, and that how God will give him righteousness. And then in the next layer, as we work our way in on this sandwich, he's talking about the offspring. Abram has no kids, and God's been telling him, you're going to be a father of multitudes. And Abram's like, I'm getting really old here, and I still don't have kids. I really don't understand how this is possible. But God is telling him, you will, trust me, you will have kids. And then in the most important part, he says, you're heir. It's not going to be Lot. He thought maybe for a while it's going to be Lot, but then Lot just goes off the rails, and he's down in Sodom doing his thing. And then he thought, well, maybe it'll be my, my servant Eliezer. You know, because it was very common practice back then that if you didn't have any kids, you know, your most loyal subject in your house, your most faithful employee, especially if he grew up in your house like Eliezer did, well, you pass everything on to him. You basically adopt him and give everything to him. And he's like, no, it's not going to be him. Later, he thinks it's going to be Ishmael, but that's a whole other story. Abram has really a hard time with trusting God and his promise. And we could look at him and say, oh, Abram, just trust God. Well, again, he has no Bible. He has no church. He has none of these things. And he still doesn't have a child. And he's approaching 100 years old. So looks like everything is working against him. And you and I would be in the same situation, I'm sure. Um, but there's another chiastic structure that follows. And this is the pattern I used for the, the sermon this morning. He's talking about the land in verse 7. And he's talking about the land in verse 18. Then he goes on to talk about the, the cutting of the animals, which again is really bizarre, but we'll talk about what they were doing there. And that's where Abram asks the question, verse 8, he says, how will I know? And in verse 17, the answer comes with, behold, the smoking pot and the fiery furnace. And then it, as it works its way in, it talks about the sunset, the things going down in darkness. And then back in, in uh, verse 17, it says the same thing. And you see this chaotic structure continue, this pattern. And then he says, they know for certain, he gives the promise of the land and the prophecy of the slavery. And of course, what's really interesting at the chiastic structure, it's not always good news. In this case, it's bad news. The middle of the chiastic structure is your people are going to be afflicted for hundreds of years. And that probably hit Abram like a, a, uh, a ton of bricks. It probably hit him really hard to know that, yeah, the promise is coming, but it, it's going to have a bad side to it. So I could have divided Genesis 15 this way. Abram's wondering how this is going to happen. He's worried about his people. And then he, there's the prophecy of the wandering of Israel. But I looked at that and I thought, but that's looking at everything of what Abram, have, Abram does. I think we need to look at this passage of what God does. And I think a lot of times you can read Scripture both ways. A lot of times we're guilty of reading Scripture of like, how does this apply to me? How could this help me today? But we, and we can do that. Don't hear me wrong, okay? You can read Scripture saying, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? But you also need to read Scripture saying, God, who are you? Who are you? What can I learn about you in this passage? Not just we'll learn about what am I going to do in this passage. So the first thing we see here, there's a promise of salvation, particularly to Abram. There's the promise of descendants. There's the promise of the land. There's the prophecy of slavery of his people in the future. But then there's the power of the covenant. The power of the covenant. We'll go through all these, but we'll build to the last one here, uh, the power of the covenant. So first of all, the promise of salvation. It says, after these things. Now, there's a simple little phrase, but whenever you're reading your Bible, pay attention to every little phrase, okay? After what things? Well, if you were here last week, you remember, Abram just took on five kings. Five kings, and how many men did he have? 318. 318 against tens of thousands. And they won. Now, let me, let me just, let, let's just put this into real context. Let's say that you are driving home one day and you accidentally pull out in front of this other car who has a group of thugs in it, okay? Four guys in the car. And they're like mad and they're beeping the horn at you and you're like driving home and they're like waving and they're telling you you're number one with their fingers and they're all just, they're following you home. And you know, you're like, these guys are not leaving. You pull into your neighborhood and they pull into your neighborhood. You pull in their driveway and they park behind you. And they get out and they're like, man, you, blah, blah, blah. And they're calling you all kinds of amazing names. And they want to fight. And then you miraculously pull out the jujitsu and you take all four guys and beat them up. Okay? And then you go inside and tell your wife what a stud you are. Okay? Now, and you think pretty good about it. But you know, the next day you're thinking, wait a minute. 
What if they come back? That's what Abraham's thinking. It didn't say he destroyed these armies. He chased them for 40 miles and they ran away. But now he's thinking, what if they come back? What if they come back with more help, more allies this time? You know, there's, I, I thank God for the veterans in our church. You know, many of you have been in, even in combat. But war is a horrible thing to go through. Even if you win, it's not fun. And Abraham has just got out of being in a war where he thought him and his family would be threatened and, and their to lose their lives. But thank God he gave them the victory. But now he's wondering, are they going to come back? So after, put a little context here. After all these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. This is the first time in the Bible the phrase, the word of the Lord, is used. This tells us that Abraham, and as we call him now, Abram, is a prophet. You see that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Daniel in the vision. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah at night. And it means a, a prophetic word came to him. So Abram here is a prophet. And this is the first time that phrase is used. Before it just said, and the Lord said to Abram. But now God is speaking in a more official capacity, thus saith the Lord. And it says the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is showing a personal effect here. In fact, I think we could even ca capitalize the word word here. The word, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. I believe that Jesus Christ came to Abram here in person to deliver this important message. And he came to him in a vision. Now, there's, Abram's kind of asleep. He's kind of in a quasi-trance state here. And God's speaking to him in, in, in a vision. And he says, fear not, Abram. Why is he saying fear not? I'm going to protect you. You know, I know these, you won this battle, but there's not going to be any retaliation. I'm going to be your shield, which is a reference to the war. And then, then the phrase here, your reward shall be very great. I don't think that's the best translation here. Other translations say it this way, your very great reward. I think the Lord is saying, I'm going to be two things to you. I'm going to be your protection, but I'm also going to be your reward. I am your reward. Now, that's interesting that he says, I'm going to be your reward because Abraham just refused. The king of Sodom offered him all kinds of possessions. He said, hey, you take everything, just give me the people. Of course, he was doing that to get political leverage and to take credit and glorify himself in it. And that's why Abraham said, no, no, I don't want, I don't want your reward. And God says, good for you, Abram, because I'm going to be your reward. And that, that's the best part of being a believer, is that God is our reward. You see, when you're born again, you get forgiveness. Amen? Think about all you've been forgiven of. We can have share time later if you want. <laughs> Man, we've been forgiven of a lot. I mean, we would be embarrassed to say all we've been forgiven of. When you're born again, you get peace with God. That, that right there is amazing. Knowing that where you'll be for all eternity and that you are no longer enemies with God, but you're right with Him. It's more than just right with Him. He loves you. He adores you. He, you're in a great relationship with Him. When you're born again, you get power. You get the power of the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit of God, the power to live out these biblical principles. It's an amazing power that the world does not have. When you're born again, you get a church family. Amen? How cool is that? You don't have to do this by yourself. You've got other believers who are willing to walk down the road with you and follow Christ with you. When you're born again, you get heaven. Man, that beats the alternative, right? You know Eternity, smoking or not, right? Remember they used to ask that when you buy your plane tickets? So you get heaven. That's also really glorious. But when you're born again, the very best part of being born again is you get Jesus. You get Jesus. That's the best part. And now some of you may be looking at me like, well, okay, all that other stuff was really good, but I don't know if I can relate to this. You, you get Jesus. What does that really mean? John Piper asked a really amazing question, and, and read along with me here. He says, the critical question for our generation, and for every generation, is this. And think of this hypothetical with me. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you'd ever had on earth, and all the food you'd ever liked, and all the leisure activities that you've ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you've ever seen, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, and no human conflict whatsoever, and, or any natural disasters, could you have all of this, and could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Yeah, Jose, you're right. The answer should be no. If you went to heaven, you'd be like, okay, but, but where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And if he's not there, I don't want to be there. The best 
part of heaven is Jesus. The best part of being a Christian is Jesus, being your best friend, your Savior, your Lord, being all those things to him. Do, do you know him in that way? Do you really know him like you know your spouse, like you know your best friend? If not, I challenge you this year to get to know Christ better than you've ever known him before. This is after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram. He said, fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. That's the best part of being a believer. And it says at this point, and this is where it gets a little tricky. Verse 6 says, and he believed the Lord, and he, and he God, counted to him as righteousness. Now, the Hebrew here is a little tricky because some translation says, and he had believed the Lord. Somewhere, either at this point or prior to this point, Abraham put his faith in Jesus Christ. This is where, at this point or somewhere prior, shortly before this, Abram trusted Christ and was born again. Now, it says he believed. That word believe doesn't mean he believed in the existence of God. No, it's not what it says. He believed the Lord. He trusted the Lord. The word trust could be inserted here. It means that he put his, put his full faith and reliance upon the Lord. And God counted it. And this is a, a financial term. It means an accounting. God credited it to his account like a bank account. Think of a bank account that is in the red, and God makes a deposit. And what does God deposit? He deposits righteousness. He did not say, Abraham, look at you. You're righteous. No, he says, Abraham, you believe you're not righteous. Remember all that debacle with Sarai you know, lying about her? Remember all these other failures you've made? But you know what? Because you trust in me on this promise, I'm going to count you as if as you're righteous. Do you see that there? So God looks at Abram's bankrupt bank account in the, in the red by millions, and God makes an infinite deposit into his account and says, okay, now you're righteous. Paul in Romans talks about Abram a lot. And, and this is a great commentary, better than I can expound upon this passage in Genesis 15. He says, for if Abraham were justified by works, that word if is important. This is a hypothetical. It is not saying that Abraham was justified by works. It says if it were even possible, he has something to brag about, to boast about, but what? Not before who? Not before God. You see, you can have all the good works that would far surpass any of your friends. Let's suppose at your college, you join a group of students that help the homeless. Okay. Let's suppose you donate blood more than anybody. Let's suppose you give to world hunger causes more than anybody. Let's suppose you help grandmas cross the street. Let's suppose you're nice to you know people who aren't from here. You're, you do all kinds of great things. None of it would be enough to impress God. And yet the world's universal religion is you do enough, God accepts you. You don't do enough, God rejects you. And that is not true. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. Abraham was a good man. Abraham did a lot of things that the world wasn't. He was one of the few believers on the planet at this time. He left his culture. He left his land. He left everything to follow God to a land that he didn't even know where he was going to by faith. Without a Bible, without a church, without the internet, without any of those things, without Christian music, all those things that, that we take for granted, he had none of, and yet he's following God. And yet God says, even that's not good enough. And then it says, for what does the scripture say? That right there is so important. Whenever you're in a discussion with somebody, the bottom line is, yeah, but what does the scripture say? You know what the generations today say? Well, I just feel. Well, I just feel. It's like, who cares about your feelings? Your feelings are your feelings, and there's 8 billion people on the planet, and there's 8 billion different feelings. We don't make decisions based on feelings. We make descriptions of what does the scripture say? Here's what it says. It says, Abraham believed God, and this is quoting this verse we just read in Genesis 15, and it was counted or credited to his account as righteousness. That's what makes all the difference. And then he gives you two people here. Let's talk about one person who wants to work. Okay? I want to work for my salvation. I want to be a good enough person to go to heaven, to go to paradise, to experience karma, or to whatever, to reincarnate, whatever religion you want to choose. I want to do enough good works. His wages, what he's working for, is not counted as a gift, but as something that's due to him. You see, religion is, God, look at all I've done. Now you owe me. I have something due to me because I did all this stuff. 
But the Bible says it's not about what God owes you. It's a gift. Gift has no strings attached. It's not because you've done anything. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to keep it. It's yours because I love you. God says, I love you. Here's a gift. Will you receive it? Oh, no, no, I don't need your gift, God. Look at me. I'm working over here. Look how good I am over here. It's like the difference between Cain and Abel. Cain's like, God, look at all the crops I've done with my own hands. I harvested all this. I brought all this in. And Abel says, I got this lamb you gave me. You gave it to me as a gift. Now I'm going to give it back to you. You see the difference between the two plans of salvation here? And yet all the universal world religions are do enough good and you go to, to eternity. And the Bible says none of us can do enough good to earn eternity. It goes on and says, but to the one who does not work, but believes. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do good works. It says you don't do good works to be saved, but you simply believe. You simply trust. You simply rely upon him who justifies the ungodly. See, that's the problem. Most people on the planet don't want to admit that they're ungodly. Like, how can you get saved if you don't even think you're lost? You know? You could be driving down the road, and you're going. One time I was traveling to Ohio with this guy, and um, we were taking turns driving, and so we pulled over to the gas station. We gassed up. We got back in the car. It was my turn to take a nap and his turn to drive because we're driving from Delaware to Missouri all the way straight through. And so I'm asleep, and I, about an hour later, I kind of turn over. I look up, and I'm like, what did that sign just say? Look, it said, look, it said east. I'm like, why was that? And there comes that, hey, Randy. Which way are we going? He said, oh, we're going the right way. We're going west. I said, no, we're not. Look, look, look. We had driven an hour and a half the wrong direction through Ohio. And I'm like, but he thought he's going the right way, just going down the road thinking he's okay. And he didn't realize he was lost. You know, he had to realize he was lost going the wrong way before he could head the right way. And that's the way most of your friends, your neighbors, your relatives are. It's like, I'm a good person. In fact, Barna did a research thing that where... 81% of people think they're better than the average person. Do the math. <laughs> we can't all be better than the average person, but we all think that we are, right? Verse 6 says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts, credits, righteousness. Look at this. Read the purple words with me. Apart from works. And yet, look at all these religions out there that say, do good works, do good works. I grew up in a religion that I was told, you keep the Ten Commandments, you'd be a good boy, Gary, and you'll go to heaven. And the Bible says God gives his righteousness apart from your good works. It's not a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of just simply reading the Bible. Someone is probably thinking now about what the book of James has to say. The teens are studying the book of James, by the way. And there's people, in fact, you will have a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door or a Mormon knock on your door. And when you start talking about being saved by grace through faith, they're going to say, oh, yeah, but what about the book of James? You know, and here's where they're going to take you. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? See, right there, they'll say, you have to be saved by faith and works. I grew up Catholic, and that's what we're taught. Faith and works together is what saves you. And so they'll, they'll quote you this verse, and they'll say, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Wait a minute, Gary. Is there a contradiction in the Bible? Rome is just saying he, Abraham was justified by faith. Now James is over here saying he's justified by works. Uh-oh, looks like a contradiction in the Bible. No, it's not. Remember, what's the key to all biblical interpretation? Context. Let's look at the context, okay? Anybody can have their words taken out of context. In fact, Martin Luther, the reformer, he had a hard time with the book of James. He called it a letter of straw because he had a hard time interpreting. Eventually, he got it right. But watch, watch this here. Let's just look at the context. James 2.22 says, You see, everybody say, You see. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. From whose standpoint are we trying to see whether Abraham saved or not? From your eyes, in the eyes of men. Verse 24 backs up. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But what does Romans say? But not before God. You see, James is talking about, is someone saved in the eyes of men? Romans is talking about, is someone saved in the eyes of God? Abraham was saved in the eyes of God, but nobody else knew it until he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Then they're like, oh, okay, look, he really is saved. You see, you're justified. Your salvation looks real to everybody around you when they see the good works. But you're saved in God's eyes by faith. But faith that is alive will produce true good works. It's all about the context. He says, so 
When was Abraham justified by works in the eyes of men? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar in chapter 28. But we just saw that he got saved here in verse 15. In verse 15, God saw that he's saved. Thirteen chapters later, he demonstrates his salvation to the world by what he's willing to do. You see it? It's very clear. It's not, there's no contradiction in the Bible there at all. So James is about being justified in the eyes of men. Romans is about being justified in the eyes of God. Abraham was justified by faith in the eyes of God in chapter 15. Abraham was justified by works in the eyes of men in chapter 28. So just read the further context and the question answers itself. So let me ask you this personal question. Is there enough evidence of good works in your life to be justified in the eyes of men? If I was to randomly pick a house four doors away from you and say, hey, those people that live right there at that house down there, see that one right there with the yard needs mowing over there? Uh, do you know those people? What do you know about them? Getting personal here, right? And they'd be like, oh yeah, well, I think they're really fo strong followers of Jesus. They seem like they're willing to do anything for anybody. You know, do your works go before you and show that you're saved? I'm not saying that you're not saved. I'm saying, but do your works demonstrate to those around you that you are saved? Galatians 3.8 says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, right? By faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, some people take this word gospel in the generic sense as just good news. He preached good news. Hey, I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a promise. I personally believe, and I'm, I wouldn't fight over this, but I personally believe he preached the specific gospel that he taught him the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and, and that that's what the seed would produce. Because here's why. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even to raise him from the dead. God says, hey, I'm going to create a great nation from you, even though I make kids. Okay, finally, here's a kid. Here's Isaac. Now, Isaac is 14, 15 years old. Okay, I want you to sacrifice your only son. Wait a minute, God. You promised me a great nation, a great land. How can I fill that land and have a great nation of people if the only son I have you want me to give back to you? And God goes, trust me. Well, God, Abraham's like, you know what? I really consider that God, if I kill Isaac, is going to raise him dead. Now, how did he know anything about the resurrection? It just said he preached the gospel to him. God's saying, hey, someday I'm going to sacrifice my son. I want you to do the same thing. Someday, out of your seed is going to come the Messiah, and he will die for the sins of your people and the sins of the whole world. He will be buried, and he'll raise again. And that's the promise I'm going to fulfill for you. Now you see if you trust me right now. And Abram's like, okay, I'm going to draw back this knife. I'm going to sacrifice my son like a lamb. And God's going to raise from the dead because God said he'd raise his son from the dead. I don't think it's a leap to say that the gospel that Abraham was preached by God himself was the specific gospel of Jesus Christ. Abraham put his hope in the eternal salvation in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And God, at that point, counted him righteous. Otherwise, you'd have two plans of salvation. How did you get saved? You trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How did Abraham get saved? He trusted in the same thing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and been made righteous, just like Abraham was? So let's go to the second point, the promise of descendants. The promise of descendants. I'm not talking about some weak Disney show. We're talking about the descendants of Abraham. But Abraham said, only the teens got that one, I guess. Only, Abraham said, oh Lord, what will you give me? And I think there's a bit of snarkiness right now that Abraham is saying here. It's like, you promised me a long time a kid. You didn't come through with that promise. Now what do you promise me, God? What are you going to give me now, God, that you're not going to? I'm still childless. You haven't even kept the first promise. Now you're going to start promising me more stuff? And the heir of my house is Eliezer. I mean, all I've got is a, is a Gentile that I've picked up along the way. And you're, here you are making more promises to me, God. But Abraham said, behold. Now look, look, Abraham. That's what the word behold means. He says, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. So God, God, I'm sorry, Abraham's saying, look, God, you haven't kept your promise. And behold, 
the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir. I think God used his God voice here and got deep on him. And, okay? and he says, your very son will be your heir. Trust me. So he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven. And, and here again, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And the Lord brought him out. I think Abram and God and Jesus Christ are sitting in the tent. And Jesus gets up and says, come here. Takes him up by the hand. Let's walk outside. Look up there into the stars. Look into the skies. Anybody ever been camping like up north, like Colorado, New Mexico, whatever? And you see the stars there? It's like, oh my gosh. You look up here and it's like, oh, there's some stars. You go up there and like, no, no, there's or, those are stars. Those are stars. I mean, you see like clouds. And you realize that's not a cloud. That's a galaxy. And it's amazing. We need to spend more time with God's creation and we'll appreciate it more. But he says, I want, I want you to just look up into this heaven. I want you to see. And, and God is trying to get Abraham to think outside the tent. <laughs> inside the tent, he's like, I have no son. I've got Eliezer. Sorry, nothing personal, Eliezer. But I don't know where this is going to happen. God's like, hey, think outside the tent here. Let's go out and look at the galaxy. I didn't just, you made this tent. I made the universe. Who are you trusting in at this point in time? It says he brought him outside. He said, look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you're able. And the answer is you're not able. Did you know only 400 years ago, astronomers thought there was approximately 1,100 stars? 1,100. The Bible told us thousands of years ago, no, you, they're innumerable. You cannot count. And now we know through the Hubble telescope and other scientific advances that it is literally an innumerable number of stars. And God says right here, thousands of years ago, you can't number the stars. But science thinks they know better. But again, science always comes full circle to agree with the Bible. So let's move on, not only to the promise of descent, but now the promise of the land. He says, I, the Lord, and whenever you see the Lord in all uppercase, what name is that? Yeah, Yahweh, Jehovah, transliterated there. I am the all-sufficient one. I don't need anything. How did you get to where you are? How did you win the battle that you won? I'm the one that brought you here. Look where I brought you from. You were just a pagan idolater. And now here you are sitting under the stars with Jesus here, and you are getting the, receiving these promises. I'm the one that's going to give you the promise of the land. So when you struggle to trust where the Lord is taking you, remember who he is and where he brought you from. Think about maybe what you're struggling with right now. Maybe there's a job change, and you're like, oh, I really don't know what to do. Maybe there's a big financial commitment that you're trying to decide whether to make. Maybe it's your kid's future, next steps for them. What are you struggling to trust God with? Remember who God is, number one. Remember how far he's brought you? Think about where you were. Adults, we can say amen to that. And we know at times in life, like, I don't even deserve to be alive. I was thinking about that the other day. All the dumb stuff I did as teens, and I'm thinking, how many times I could have been killed or killed somebody? One time we were at our church. We had like 15 acres. And it was kind of out in the country. And the church had a tractor. And they just left the keys in the tractor. So as teenagers, we think, well, we go to church here. We can drive the tractor. No joke. We would get on this big red tractor, kind of like the Green Acres tractor there, and we'd all pile on it. We're like sitting on the hood of the tractor. We're on like three guys sitting in the seat and standing up behind it, and we're pulling a wagon full of kids. And I'm like 15 years old, and I'm driving a tractor. And, and uh, um, Jimmy Wiggins is sitting right here in front of me. I'm having to look around him. He's like this. And I made a hard turn and hit a bump, and Jimmy Wiggins fell off. And we're trucking along at maybe 10, 15 miles an hour. He fell between the front wheel and the back wheel. And the back wheels were the two big dualies. And Jimmy Wigan fell and rolled before I crushed him. I should have killed my best friend right there. I mean, and I think about how many times I've driven. I remember passing cars as a stupid teenager driver on a hill, you know, just flying. I have another car come over the hill, smash, you know. Think about all the dumb decisions you've made. Think about the lowest points of your life. Remember the divorce, the bankruptcy, whatever you've been through, the cancer. Man, think about who God is and where he's brought you from, and that gives you the ability to trust him in the future. He said, oh, but Lord, how, how am I supposed to know? I'm, I've got all these promises, but how could I really know for sure that we're going to possess the land? There's a great promise in Scripture, and I think often it's misunderstood. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we've often read that verse like, man, this piece is so amazing, you can't even just understand it. That's not what it's talking about. 
Jesus said, when you're in a difficult situation, you're like, yeah, but I just want to know why, God. I just don't understand why you're letting this happen. God's like, okay, I can give you peace, or I can let you know why. I can let you feel the peace of God, or you can understand why this is happening. Which one do you want? Because you can't have both. You see, you can, God says, okay, here's why you have cancer. Here's why you're going through this divorce, whatever. And then you'd be like, I feel worse now than I did before. So now it's all my fault. Okay. So now you understand? Great. Or God says, you know what? You can trust me and I'm going to give you peace. That Even though you don't know what's going on, you don't understand everything, you trust me and you know that I understand and that I'm in control. Which one do you want, peace or understanding? And he says here that peace surpasses or is better than understanding. It says, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, covenant is better than the contract. Okay? It's more binding. A marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. He says, to your offspring, I will, I give this land. And what am I going to give you? From the river of Egypt, what's the great river of Egypt, everybody? The Nile. To the great river of Euphrates, what, Euphrates came out of what great place at the beginning? The Garden of Eden. So from this western border to this western border, both sides by rivers, okay? I'm going to give you all of that. And if you look on a map of what God describes, Israel has never occupied all this land. See the Nile on the left, see the Euphrates on the right, and then the southern border connecting the two, okay? Israel's never, now, even under Solomon, they got a good chunk of this, probably about 65% of it, but they've never occupied all of it. When will this promise of the land be completely fulfilled? When Christ returns, and he sets up his kingdom, and he rules the earth from the new Jerusalem, and he occupies all of this territory. It's interesting, God has promised us a lot more than we've actualized and are willing to do by faith. And so he names all these people. These are not good people. That's why he names them all. Not just so you have a bunch of hard names to pronounce. You know, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabmanites, the Hittites, the Termites. They're all in there, okay? And these are not good people. But he's saying, I'm going to fulfill this promise in the midst of a wicked generation. And God will do the same thing for you. You think about in your public school, you might be the only Christian, not only in your class, but on the whole floor or very few Christians, maybe where you go to college, maybe where you work. And God says, I can still work. It doesn't matter who's surrounding you at that time. I can still work in the midst of all this. So he says, okay, but how am I to know? I really want to know. And he said to him, okay, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat. It's like he doesn't answer the question. Parents, have you ever answered your kid's question with an illustration? Like one of your kids is like, yeah, but why do I have to do this? Why have to do this? Okay, you know what? Go get me a switch. You didn't answer your question, did you? Now you're fixing to illustrate, <laughs> okay? And, and this, is, this is what Abraham thinks is happening. Some of the kids are going, what's a switch? <laughs> anyway, um, this is how God's answering. He's okay, you know what? Shut up. Go get these animals. I want you to bring me a heifer. What's a heifer? Female cow. Female cow. Female goat three years, a ram, which is male, a turtle dove, doesn't say which one, which is a bird, and then a young pigeon. By the way, I don't put too much into numerology, but there's some significance there. It's interesting how many animals are. There's five. Five in the Bible, Old and New Testament, is the number of grace. God says, even through this hard, what I'm, this hard illustration I'm about to give you, I'm still showing you grace. The first five books of the, ten, the, the Old Testament are called the Pentateuch. The first five books of the New Testament the four Gospels and the Acts of, of, of His Apostles, okay? So you got grace at the beginning of the Old Testament, grace at the beginning of the Old, New Testament. You see grace in the situation. And it says, so we're going to come back to what happens to animals. Just plant that thought aside. We're going to move to the next prophecy here. So there's the prophecy of slavery. So as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now, when's the last time you remember reading about someone in a deep sleep? Adam, right? God did something major with Adam. He brought him his wife. He brought him his bride, which is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And now here's another deep sleep. Abraham, who is the, the messianic forerunner, and he's going to bring his people into the situation. So there's a hyperlink there. But this is not just any darkness. This is not just any sunset. This is a dreadful, great darkness. Okay, This is similar to a, a supernatural darkness that he brought over the land of Egypt when he does that later. And supernatural darkness in the New Testament we'll talk about in a little bit. 
This is a supernatural, thick darkness. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. What is the land that's not theirs? What will that be? Where will they serve for 400 years? Egypt. Now, what's interesting is, does God in this chapter name the country that are going to go? No. What if he did? What if God said, hey, you guys could be slaves in Egypt. Where, in Ab- where would Abraham and his descendants start going? Opposite of Egypt. Okay, if that's where we're going to end up. And so that's why he didn't tell them. And that's why God often doesn't tell you details that you may want to know because it might move you in the wrong direction. And it says, and they will be servants or slaves there and they will be afflicted. That's the big thing here. It's, it's going to be ugly. And it's going to last for hundreds of years. He says, but I will bring judgment on the nation. And again, that nation is unnamed. It's interesting that God used this nation to judge Israel, but then God punishes Egypt for punishing Israel, that he did. But that's the way God works, though. He will use people, even in their sinfulness, to punish you, to get you back on the right track, and then punish them for what they've done wrong. But it's again, everybody had free will in the situation. He says, and they will serve, and afterwards, but here's the good news, they'll come out with great possessions. Remember the Egyptians? When they gave them all their treasures, say, hey, get out of here. Please go, go. Take everything. Go. Just please, no more plagues. No more plagues. I have enough frogs, lice, and locusts. Please, just leave. It says, and you shall go to your father. Talk about you specifically, Abram. You'll go to your father. That's so just a nice way of saying he'll die. Okay, All of your ancestors are dead. You're going to join them, but you're going to go in peace. And isn't that what we often pray for our elderly relatives? That they would go in peace. And you'll be buried in a good old age. So even though your descendants are going to go through a really rough time, I promise you, you're going to die in peace. And they'll come back here to the land of Canaan in the fourth generation, okay, so approximately 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Why is God not doing this now? Because the Amorites are evil, but God's saying, but I'm going to be patient. But there's a certain point to where their evil will rise, okay, that's enough, and I'm going to put an end to it. You think about how much more evil can America become? How much more evil can our world become? I mean, I'd like for God to just end it now, please. Just lightning bolts, let's go. let's go. Let's get it done. But thank the Lord, He is much more patient than we are. And the Amorites were doing child sacrifice like nobody's business. They were sacrificing babies. They were abusing women. They were terrorizing the nations around them. And God says, you know what? Their evil is still not complete. I'm going to let it get to a certain level, and then I'm going to step in, showing that God, his steadfast love is amazing. So we've covered the the salvation promise to Abraham, how he got saved, and the promise of the descendants that he will have a people through a son, a promise of a land, the prophecy of the slavery, and that brings us to the most important part, the power of the covenant. That's what the animals were about. Abraham's like, how can I know? How can I know? And he's like, okay, get a switch, (laughs) you know. Go get these animals. And he doesn't tell Abram what to do with the animals because Abram knows exactly what to do with the animals. He knows exactly what this animal is about. This is a blood covenant. <clears throat> now, there's two different times in history that he used blood covenants that are significant. There's lots more, but I'm going to cover the two most significant. <clears throat> Let's say that there's two kingdoms, okay? And they're kind of becoming aggressive towards one another. And one of the kingdoms over here steals this kingdom's cattle over on a hill and they go back over and they steal it back and they kill a few people in the process and it starts to escalate and then they go to war and this king crushes this king and he says and they're like okay and they wave the white flag enough 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 stop let's 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 do a treaty we're done and so that king would take the lesser king which would be called a vassal and he'd take him out to a field and this as a treaty the king who lost, the king who was like, no, no, please back off, would bring a heifer, a goat, a ram, turtle dove. He'd bring some animals, maybe not these exact ones. And he'd say, okay, cut the animals in half. And they would dig a trench between the two halves of the animal, and the, the two halves of the animal would bleed into the trench, making basically like a, a trench of blood. He said, okay, now look, if you and your people don't stop stealing our cattle, we're going to come here and do this again to you. You're going to walk through this these bloody animals, and you promise that you guys are going to back off and keep the treaty, and you stay on your side. And so that king would march through in with his robes, getting blood all over them as he stomped through and splashed on the bottom like that. And he said, okay, 
You do, if you don't keep your promise, you see this dead animal, that's going to be you next time. It's a pretty powerful picture, huh? And so when Abraham's, okay, God, I don't know. How do I know? I know. God says, go get some animals. I said, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> and you know what Abraham's thinking? Oh, my gosh, God's going to make me march through. And if you don't stop complaining, if you don't trust me, this is going to be you. I'm going to, I'm going to rip you to pieces. That's what Abraham's thinking that this is all about. So notice that God doesn't answer the question, and he doesn't tell him what to do with the animals. But Abraham knows full well what God is trying to say with this. So you ever heard the phrase, let's cut a deal? This is where it comes from. They would say, let's cut a covenant. Let's stop fighting. Okay, I surrender. Let's cut a deal. Let's cut a covenant. So that, that's where it comes from today. So look at these animals. A heifer. In fact, the Bible talks about a red heifer. This is a picture of a red heifer, okay, in Numbers 19. It's interesting that that red heifer was the sacrifice the high priest made, not in the temple, but outside the city gates. And where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city. You see where this is going? The next animal was a goat. It's a reference to the scapegoat of Zechariah. That's where they would take for, for all their sins, the priests would lay their hands on the goat and they would transfer their sins and say, God, forgive us for what we've done. They'd transfer their sins to the scapegoat. They'd take the scapegoat out on a leash out in the wilderness and they'd let it go out there. What would happen to a goat out in the wilderness? Lions and tigers and bears, right? Yes, amen. <laughs> that, that scapegoat was dead. All their sins were transferred to the goat. And it was a picture of Jesus Christ taking our sins. And then there was the ram. This was for God. We, we've done things. We don't even know what we've done wrong. So we're going to let the ram be the substitute for us instead of you punishing us. And of course, later, when he goes to sacrifice Isaac, what will get stuck in the thicket? A ram. And then when, when Mary was so poor, but she had to do that for the sin offering, what did she bring? Turtle doves and pigeons because she was so poor. And so the pigeon here is one of purification as well. So we're talking from a red heifer, which is worth thousands of dollars, to pigeons, which are basically worthless. God says, I'm going to cover the sins of all people, from the very rich to the very poor. And these are the five animals that will later be part of the Levitical sacrifice. But we don't have a Le Levitical priesthood yet. All this is a foretaste of what's to come in the future. And so Abraham brought, think about Abraham, man, I am in trouble. God said, okay, shut up, enough. Go get the animals. And he said, okay, so he took them, he cut them in half, because he's seen this done before. Oh, the second time this is used, not only did big countries do it in, in wartime to be a treaty, but let's say this tribe over here has a son, and he wants to marry the daughter of that tribe over there. The two dads would get together and say, I promise I will give my daughter to you. And if I don't, you can cut me in pieces. And if you don't deliver on your son and all that goes along with that and pay for the, the what's it called? The, um, the dowry, then I'm going to cut you to pieces. And so the two dads would walk through the blood covenant, promising the two children of the arranged marriage. That was another time. But this was basically made as contracts. They didn't have lawyers back then. They just had bloody animals. And it was made a whole lot of bigger picture for sure. So he cut them in half, and he put one on each side, but he didn't cut the birds in half again because too small. So you've got heifer, heifer, goat, goat, ram, ram, pigeon, dove. Okay, you've got six right there. Five animals, the number of grace, delivered to six, the number of man, grace being given to man. And they're, they're cut in half. The birds' throats are slit. All of it's dripping down into this little reservoir you've made that you're going to stomp through that's collecting all the blood, which would be a lot of blood when you just consider a heifer alone, not to mention the other animals. So he does all that. And it's such a bizarre picture. But look at this. So the birds of, but then the birds of prey came down. God throws in this interesting detail. Why is this in the Bible? What birds of prey? Well, this tells us several things. Number one, a lot of time has passed. <laughs> you know, if an animal gets hit by a, a car on the road, the vultures don't come until that animal is like really decaying and they can smell it from far away, okay? So Abraham's cut all these animals in half and he's like sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting 
we don't know if it's hours or days or what. It's enough time has passed to where vultures are now circling. He's like shooing off the vultures. Why did he do that? Well, I think there's some symbolism here. I think this literally happened, but there's a, a metaphor here. All throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, birds are bad. Okay? He talks about the kingdom of God is like a seed that grows up in their tree, but then the birds come in to, to, to it. And then, of course, um, uh, Jesus says the sower went out to sow, but who came to pluck up the seed? The birds did. Okay? So ravens, vultures, all that stuff, they're always a symbol of bad. You even see that in the book of Revelation. Okay, so I think this is whenever you enter into a covenant with God, Satan is going to spiritually try to attack you, and things, bad influences from the world will try to interfere with that covenant. But watch what happens here. Then the sun had gone down, and it was dark. And of course, earlier, the parallel verse said it was a thick, great, supernatural darkness. And now all of a sudden, God's showing up. And he doesn't say, hey, Abraham, okay, now walk through it, because if you do this again, I'm going to cut you in half. He doesn't say that. A smoking pot and a flaming torch. Now, scholars disagree on how this should be translated. Like the word pot, because it's something about like round fire, round fire. And it's like, okay, well, round fire, that's like maybe a pot. So they translate it pot, but I don't think it's that at all. What else is round? A column or a pillar. I think this goes back to where, where we see that will happen here in Exodus. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way, and by night by a pillar of fire. I think it's a round fire that goes upward like a tube or a column, but again, it doesn't matter. Either way, this is a supernatural appearance, and it's not just God sending fire. It's not just God sending smoke. It's the Lord himself going before them in the fire and in the smoke, the two symbols of how he leads his people. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, the smoking fire pot or the flaming torch passed, between the pieces. Abraham's been up all night and maybe all day chasing away vultures, waiting for God to show up, say, okay, walk through the bloody pieces. Or, like it would happen many times, let's walk through it together. But God does neither. He says, you sit there. I'm going to walk through the pieces. And God, in his supernatural presence, he walks through the blood and tramps through the blood and gets the blood all over his robe. And then he doesn't come back and say, okay, Abraham, your turn. He doesn't do that. You understand what's happening here? God is saying, if I break this covenant, may I be torn to pieces like these animals. But the other half of it, but if you break this covenant, may I be torn into pieces like these animals. You understand what's happening? God said, if I fail to keep my promise, I'll be ripped apart. If you don't keep your promise, I'm still the one who read part. So guess what, Abraham? You're off the hook. I will take full responsibility for this covenant. I will pay all the consequences if this covenant is broken, whether you break it or I break it. This is an amazing picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see in Luke, it says, it was now the sixth hour and there was a great darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which by that Bible time there would basically be three in the afternoon. From sunrise at 6 a.m., Ninth hour later, three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple, the curtain of the temple is a picture of Jesus' body, was torn in two. So when great darkness covered the earth, Jesus walked through the bloody torn pieces for us. This was a picture of Jesus Christ. This bizarre picture of the Old Testament is Jesus. Isaiah prophesies this 650 years before it happened. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Remember he told you your people will be afflicted? Now Jesus is being afflicted instead of them. But he was pierced for our transgressions. The broken covenant. We broke the covenant yet, but he was pierced. Because we broke the covenant, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Abraham lays out halves of bodies that trickle down blood, expecting that he has to walk through them because he's going to break the covenant. And God goes through it as a picture of Jesus going through the death for us. Jesus at the Passover, there's a slain lamb in all Passovers. And Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is a pizza, matzo bread, unleavened bread that the Jews typically use. It has 
if you notice it has stripe, brown stripes on it, by his stripes we're healed. Notice if you put up the light, you'll see it has holes in it, little tiny holes. He was pierced for our transgressions. And just as Abraham took animals' bodies and broke them in half, Jesus took the bread and broke it in half and put on either side. And the blood ran through as a picture of him walking through it for us. Do you understand that your salvation has nothing to do with how good you are? Because none of us are. None of us. Not even the man standing before, before you. I am the chief of sinners among you. And yet Christ says, Gary, I love you so much. I'm going to go through hell for you. I'm going to walk through the blood for you. I'll take the consequences. My body will be ripped in half like these animals are ripped in half for you so that you don't have to be. Will you trust me? Abraham kind of went and said, I ain't getting no animals. I'm a good person. What do I have to do this for? Why do I have to get animals? I don't do any of that stuff. This is the gospel. This is why many people, this is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible because this is the gospel clearly laid out in the Old Testament. Has Christ been crushed for your iniquities? He has. Have you received that gift of salvation? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never trusted in the blood that he shed, the torture that he endured, the crown upon his head, the nails in his hands, that he did all that for you, all that for me, so that you could be saved, so that you wouldn't have to walk through this being torn apart. He was torn apart for you. You can trust him as your Lord and Savior today. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you were buried, and then on the third day that you literally rose again so I could live forever with you. I give my life to you this morning because you gave your life for me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful picture. The details are bizarre until we realize what they mean. And now we can not do anything but be amazed at the beauty of the gospel, the fantastic love of Christ. Father, may the the gospel make us better believers. May it make us better husbands. May it make us forgive those who've wronged us. May it help us to love strangers and those who don't deserve love because we know that that's where we came from. We don't deserve your love. Help us to be people full of grace and truth as our Savior. Help us to be motivated by the gospel every day of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you made a decision for Christ, I would love to talk to you about your next steps as a believer. This is my cell phone number. This is also where you can send your questions. You have a question this morning because we'll be doing question and answer in just a little bit. So if you want to know more about that, let me know. Man, if you have a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member that you want to hear these kind of messages, just invite them. Pray for them this week and invite them to join you. They may surprise you and say yes. Okay. Also, there's a Bible reading plan that we've been going through on this. You can look it up on the version called Origins. We're in step two, The Promise. All right. Um, see, Ashley, would you like to help me with question and answer session? So, yeah, text in your questions and numbers right there in red. And actually, we have several questions this morning. Good for y'all. And, of course, if you, if you don't want to text in, you want to raise your hand, you certainly can do that. Um, is this mic right here okay? I guess I just stopped texting you my question, so we'll go to everyone right else there. first. Okay, does life begin at fertilization or conception? I'm assuming conception would mean implantation yes. into the womb. I never even thought about this as an issue until recently I was discuss discussing abortion with someone who I don't think was a believer. And I said that's another reason that Christians have a hard time with the morning after pill because it's, we believe it's an abortifacient. And you're like, no, it's not because the, 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 egg has not been in, the fertilized egg has not been implanted yet, so it's, there's no abortion. I'm like, I hadn't even heard it that way before. So the question then is, okay, wait a minute. Does, does life happen at, when we've been saying for decades, Christians, life begins at conception. But by conception, we mean when the egg is fertilized. But now medical community is making a distinction between fertilization and implantation and calling that conception. So I believe life is conceived at fertilization. You've got the components of the male, you've got the components of the female. Together, they fertilize the egg. You now have a new independent life. Now, sometimes that life doesn't go anywhere. 
Sometimes it doesn't implant. Sometimes it ends up in a tubular pregnancy, all that stuff. But all of that's up to God, not up to us. So I would, my opinion, this is my opinion, okay, I believe that is a human life at fertilization, whether it implants in the womb or not properly. There's all kinds of things that go wrong. doesn't mean it's not a life. See, the, where they want to change the discussion is if it's viable, it's life. Well, how many people go to kidney dialysis twice a week? They're not viable without their kidney dialysis. They will die. Does that mean they're not a human life? How many people are on a ventilator for breathing, and if you unplug it, they'll die? Does that mean they're not a person because they're, assist, they're not viable without it? So just because a baby is, is not viable without an umbilical cord for, you know, until like so many months uh, doesn't mean it's not a human being. And, and the question is, well, if it's not a, a human life, what is it? It's alive. And where did it come from? It comes from humans. So what kind of life is it? It's a human life. So my opinion is from fertilization now that we have to make that distinction. And at fertilization, it does have its own unique DNA. That's when the that's exactly combine it. and they make their own DNA. That's, that's it. In fact, I was listening to a podcast yesterday talking about how the Supreme Court took one doctor's opinion and came up with the whole idea of trimesters and said, okay, we're, gonna, we're not going to get involved in the first. We will regulate the second and we'll outlaw the third. And it's like, why divide it into three? Why not divide it into nine? Nine months pregnancy. Why not have ninths? Why not have fourths? Whatever. And it just randomly, arbitrarily, we came up with trimesters. There's, there, there, there's not like all of a sudden, look at the baby the first time. Oh my gosh, look at the third. It's like, there's no dramatic difference. It's incredibly gra gradual and rapid. Three trimesters is just a construct of, of the medicine, medical community. They could have picked any number. All right. In last week's sermon, I believe you said Jeremiah 29, 11 is an example of a scripture that is often taken out of context or interpreted incorrectly. Will you expound on that? How should we interpret this scripture or apply it to our lives? And here it is. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yes. So we focus only on the future and the hope and, yay, good things. But read the whole chapter. <laughs> God's saying, look, I'm going to put you into captivity. It's going to be horrible. But I'm not going to forget about you. I do have a future and plan for you. But I don't have it for several hundred years. So go suffer and learn from it. And a lot of people, we don't want to talk about the suffering and the learning. We just want to talk about the good. And so the verse, just read the whole chapter. It's talking about all the hell that God's putting his people through before he keeps the promise because they've rebelled against him. That's the other part of the verse we don't want to often discuss is the rebellion brought all this on. All right, what other questions do we have? Uh, I have a comment. How dare you almost kill your best friend? Yeah, really? Yeah, shocking. <laughs> when Romans 4, 4 says your, our good works are due and not taken as a gift to God, he quotes when Jesus said this, Luke 17, 7, 10. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. I really wanted to point that out. That's yours? That's not mine. Oh, okay. Someone wanted to point Okay. Um, no, that's an excellent point. I don't know that. I hadn't heard that as a direct quote from Jesus. Maybe it is. I haven't heard that before. That's interesting. But yeah, so basically it's like at the end of the day, um, the, the employees have done their work, and they go up to their boss, expecting the boss to say, oh, thank you, thank you, you did it right. What, what are you talking about? It's your job. I pay you. You want me to thank you every day? Just like, you just did what's right. You did what's due. And so, yeah, the distinction between what's due to you and what's a gift. You know, again, if, if someone offered you an iPhone, and you, you say, okay, great, here's 50 bucks, you've just negated the whole concept of gift. Even if 50 bucks is still, because that phone's worth a whole lot more than 50 bucks. Any amount that you try to contribute negates the whole day of a gift. That's what the whole book of Galatians is. If you even contribute one work, which in their case was circumcision, you contribute one work to salvation, grace is no longer grace. That's what Paul says in Galatians. So if you say, hey, but look, here's my baptism. There's one work. Forget it. It's not a gift anymore. Okay? So you can't do anything. Is that all the questions? Yeah, one more. One more. Do you think when Abraham was, uh, was wanting a member of his house to be his heir, do you think this was the devil trying to break the holy line? This was on the comment reading today too. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Because it needed to be through Abraham literally. And Abram and Sarah think, well, maybe God meant it metaphorically. God doesn't really mean it. And that's what happens when people try and church the Bible. Maybe maybe God didn't really, there wasn't actual flood, or maybe it wasn't actually six days. And you start analyze, analogize, what's the word? Analyzing or analogy? Make it turn into analogy. Oh, Ana an analogy. Analogy. Analogizing. Analogizing. Is it analogizing? I think it is. You start making everything in the Bible a metaphor and analogy. 
instead of literal. That's what Abraham and Sarah were doing to yeah, God. You, you can't do that. I've actually had people tell me like, oh, well, my pastor says that a day is a thousand years, so maybe dinosaurs did exist in seven days, and that's how it happened. Yeah. But you can't take like little chunks of the Bible and say, okay, in this chapter of this entire book written by one person, um, it was an analogy, but over here it was literal. Right. When you start taking liberties like that, you get into some real dangerous theology. Yeah, I'll make this my last comment, and then we'll stand and sing. Why don't you stand right now so you can get the blood flowing? Um, <laughs> so that's what changed theology in, in, a, in the world is that we saw all these promises to Israel that we just studied about the, in this morning, and all throughout the Old Testament, all these promises about Israel, and then there's no more Israel. And, and Christians were like, well, how can there be a promise to Israel? It must not be a literal Israel. We must be Israel, the church. So there's no more Israel. But then in 1948, guess what? God says, there's Israel. I told you. I told you in a couple thousand years I'd bring Israel back from the four corners of the world. And people were like, that's what happens when people don't trust God because it looks like God's taking too long like he did with Abram. All right, let's sing.